Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm really excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Maureen Nemetsky. Before I introduce you, I have to say I am so grateful to you for starting us off that I joined JOMA and I followed you into this work. And you are the the progenitor, the beginning of all of this preventative health work we're doing through JOMA. So I have to thank you. Thank you. And now, I hope I didn't embarrass you. And now I'm going to introduce you. Dr. Nemetsky is a pediatric emergency medicine attending physician at Hackensack University Medical Center, Joseph M. Sanzari Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. She obtained her MD, PhD from New York University School of Medicine and completed a pediatrics residency at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center and a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at at the Children's Hospital in Montefiore. In 2019, she joined JOMA as the first chair of the Preventative Health Committee and launched our vaccination hotline and preventative health podcast. She stepped down from her role as the JOMA Preventative Health Committee Chair on May 2020 in order to devote her energies to the Medical Advisory Committees of Yeshiva Trish and Ben Parat Yosef and the New Jersey Yeshiva Joint Medical Committee as it worked with the Jewish Day in high schools in and around Bergen County to reopen and stay open safely during this pandemic. And I have to admit that I shortened. I apologize for truncating your your bio in half. So I thank you so much for doing this with me. I just want to start by saying that First of all, we are not here to push the vaccine. I always say that, but it's a thousandfold more with the vaccine for children. We're finding that parents are falling into three groups. There are those who wanted it like months ago and are first in line. Some of them were actually enrolled their children in trials, um, and they have no hesitance at all. There are the middle group who want to wait a while, um, or they're not sure, or they have questions. And then there are those who are against it, and we're not likely to change their minds. And we're not trying to. We're not trying to do that. So I think we have to first start with putting the vaccine in context of what are the risks of COVID in children, not exaggerating and not minimizing. So I'm going to give you the floor. So while we all know that COVID or uh, that COVID affects children less severely than it does adults, uh, it's still not a benign disease for children. So far in the United States, there have been close to 2 million COVID infection among children ages 5 to 11. There have been more than 8,000 hospitalizations. While, like adults, most hospitalized children do have some comorbidities that put them at risk for severe COVID, a third of the hospitalized kids were actually perfectly healthy beforehand. And there have been, among these hospitalizations, about 2,700 ICU admissions. Since the start of the pandemic, a little, a little over 800 children between the ages of 0 and 17 have died in the United States. Little more than 170 of those were between the ages of 5 and 11. That made COVID the eighth leading cause of death for children ages 5 to 11. And since the, um, since the advent of the Delta variant this summer, it has actually gone up to be the sixth leading mm-hmm. cause of death in children of this age group. 
Now, I want to put that in perspective. So in 20, um, first off, the total number of infections in children is probably an underestimate since kids mm. are less likely to be tested than adults are. And to put the hospitalizations and morbidity and mortality in perspective, 2019 to 2020 flu season was the deadliest annual flu season we have on record. That year, 199 children died of the flu. Every year in the United States, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, that's the cause of bronchiolitis for those who are listening who've ever had to give their infant or toddler some nebulizers for bronchiolitis or familiar with this virus. Um, every year, it leads to about 58,000 hospitalizations with 100 to 500 deaths among children less than five years old. So, so far, COVID has killed more children than RSV and flu do together on an average year. Um, the, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just interrupt you just a second, but when you say the deaths, when you talk about those 800, which are actually not closer to 900, because um, it's unfortunately going up yeah. more rapidly because of Delta, that's children under 18. Correct. Okay. And, and of those children under 18. Yes, the flu was children under 18. I don't have numbers. Uh, generally, RSV is usually not fatal for kids over five. Mm-hmm. Um so, and then, but so much more than flu and RSV do, but actually COVID is less deadly than pediatric cancer um, mm. tends to be. Every year there's about 1,800 children between the ages of zero and 18 die of cancer in the United States. So in terms of other things that we worry about um, for kids with COVID, the, so death is not the, it's, it's a horrible outcome. It's the worst mm. outcome, but it's not the only bad outcome. And one of the complications we've seen in kids, a little actually more frequently than we see in adults, is something called MISC, or multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, this is a pathological immune response to the virus that shows up a few weeks after the infection. And there doesn't seem to be much correlation between whether the child was symptomatic or not at the time of the actual COVID infection. The estimates vary, but it seems to be about one in a thousand children who have COVID go on to develop MISC. So with MISC, it's a constellation of symptoms um, that are caused by inflammation of all the major organs in the body. So the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the brain, skin, eyes, and the GI tract. There have been over 5,000 cases so far in the United States. The highest rate is actually among kids ages 5 to 11. It does disproportionately affect uh, minorities, and it also disproportionately affects boys. Of the kids who get MISC, the vast majority of them end up needing to be in the ICU. That's about 60 to 70%. And the fatality rate of MISC is 1% to 2%. We still don't understand why infection with COVID can later lead to MISC, um, but it is an ongoing area of research. Mm -hmm. So, and that's also like, if you look at that compared to this fear of myocarditis from the vaccine, even in the teenagers, I mean, we're going to get to it later. This is like maybe tenfold more common than that, if I do my math correct. Yes. And actually, sometimes MISC includes myocarditis as mm-hmm. part of the constellation of symptoms. So for um, for myocarditis, actually, so it's about one-tenth of one percent of all COVID patients, that's all age groups, mm-hmm. develop myocarditis at some point in their disease course. Um, it's a similar number of for those who are a similar percentage of those who are less than 16 years old. So about 100 per 100,000 COVID patients in that age group develop myocarditis at some point, either during their active infection or later on as part of their MISC constellation of symptoms. Um, 
do you, uh, in terms of the vaccine, this myocarditis has actually gotten a lot of press recently because it is actually a safety signal with the with the vaccine. There have been some rare cases seen, um, especially in um, adolescent boys after their second dose of the mRNA vaccine. But it ends up being overall, so all age groups, everyone getting the mRNA vaccine, the rate is about one in a hundred thousand vaccine recipients. It is higher um, for adolescent boys. That's about 10 in a hundred thousand. But I will also say that adolescent boys, so ages 16 to 29 are also among the most likely to get, co- get myocarditis from actual COVID. Or so another you, virus or another virus. I want to stop for a virus. second because I want this yes. to be clear because I think there's something that goes on in our brains when we hear something that happens from a vaccine where we, even if it's rare, we get terrified by it and we don't appreciate that we really need to compare the risks of the vaccine to the risks of COVID. So, so again, you're 10, depending on your age and whether mm-hmm. you're a boy or a girl, you are 10 to 100 times more likely to get myocarditis from actual COVID infection mm-hmm. than from the COVID vaccine. And it's also important to note that not all myocarditis is created equal. The vast majority of people who get myocarditis after the vaccine have a very mild case. Um, it's more mild than the myocarditis we, we see from COVID or from any other virus, because really almost any respiratory virus can lead to myocarditis. Um, and they tend to recover very, very rapidly with no long-term um, heart damage. I can say for myself, like in the emergency room, we did see a couple of kids who came in with you know, uh, EKGs and blood work that showed evidence of myocarditis. And pretty much all of them were better just a few days later um, and had treated been treated mainly just with ibuprofen. Um, Whereas the cases we saw of myocarditis from COVID itself, either as part of the acute COVID illness or as part of MISC, those were much more severe. Those kids basically almost all needed the ICU. Um, they all, Many of them had to be intubated. Many of them needed medications to keep their blood pressure stable. They spent much more time in the hospital and as a, as a whole than those who had myocarditis after the vaccine. And their echocardiograms were much more concerning. That's sort of when we do a sonogram to look at your heart function. Um, the kids who had myocarditis after the vaccine, they generally had normal echoes within just a few days. Whereas those who had it for COVID or for MISC, it took them longer to recover. And their course of illness was generally much more severe. So yes, it can happen from the vaccine, but it's much rarer than happening from the virus. And it's much less scary and much less dangerous than when Wait, it do happens we, from the do virus. Do we know why it happens from the vaccine? Because I mean, I have to say that I keep saying to people, yes, of course, it's scary. It sounds scary. We don't know why. It's an active area of research, as are a lot of things related to COVID and COVID vaccines. Um, We're still trying to tease out why that happens in the same way that we're still trying to tease out why we're seeing rates of myocarditis and MISC from COVID itself. Right. But the basic idea is if you're comparing risk to risk, it's many folds higher from the virus than the vaccine. Yes. And I'd much, if I had to take my chances, I'd rather take my chances with the vaccine than with the virus. And that's also important for people to remember. There's no, there's no option of don't get the vaccine and don't get the virus. This is a highly contagious respiratory illness that has a huge animal reservoir. It's, it's not going away and it's It's not going away. And Mm. it's, going to be impossible to avoid exposure for your entire life. Right. And I think now that we're at Delta, it's that much harder. It is so crazy, crazy infectious that we may have been able to evade it 
you know, the previous variants, but, but not this one. And so it really is virus or vaccine or virus and vaccine when we get to breakthrough, which I think we should, should cover in a few minutes. Um, And the fact that there are breakthroughs doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work. It's not perfect. Because nothing is. Right. Nothing's risk-free and nothing is perfect except Hashem. Hashem's perfect. So I do want to touch upon another complication that kids could have with COVID. This mm-hmm. is less common than it is in adults. Um, mm-hmm. It's the entity called long COVID. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different estimates out there, but it seems about 7 to 8% of children who have COVID will go on to then have some long COVID symptoms. Um, what this means is they'll have persistent fatigue or headaches or muscle aches. They might have a persistent cough or shortness of breath, especially with ex- exertion. They might have insomnia or they might have trouble concentrating or something that we call brain fog. Um, all of these things can make it really hard to function in school. It's hard for kids to do the sports and the games that they like. And it actually makes creates a lot of anxiety for kids where they're anxious, like, why, why can't I breathe normally like I used to? Why can't I run around and play? Why am I always tired? Mm-hmm. Now, unlike adults, virtually all pediatric cases of long COVID do resolve within a few months, you know, generally within two to four months. Um, but if you think about it, even if it, you know, resolves within four to 12 weeks, that's a long time in the lifespan of a child. Try to picture yourself being the high school junior who's having trouble studying for their SATs because of their brain fog or the middle school kids who who just really wanted to make the the basketball team, but is too short of breath to to run around the court. it's, It's not as debilitating or as prolonged as it seems to be for some adults, but it's still creates pretty big impact on these kids. Right. Do we know how often long COVID occurs in kids? So the estimates I've seen so far are about seven to 8% mm-hmm. ish. That might be an overestimate just because you don't have a great, right. like a very accurate denominator here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if so you it's, think it's, it's more common, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon, a crazy uncommon thing. And I believe that the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that all children with COVID get evaluated by a physician, you know, or by a healthcare professional before going back to full activity. I mean, I know we do that in our practice. And like, what virus do we do that for? It's especially important for athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. So they do recommend that all athletes, so these are kids who are on the high school basketball team or the high school soccer team or whatever it is, um, or the middle school team or on the for older, you know, on the college team, um, that they actually have to have a cardio- uh, an evaluation by a cardiologist um, after having COVID before they're allowed to return to play, just because of the high rate of heart damage from COVID itself. Which might be very subtle. Yes. Right. So, I mean, I always say, I, you know, people say, I don't want this experimental vaccine. And I'm like, but I don't want this experimental virus. <laughs> <laughs> And again, we're not doing this to try to terrify people. We are not saying that I think most of people's experience with COVID and mine is a general pediatrician, right? Because I don't see the same group of kids that you see as a pediatric emergency room doctor. Most of the kids I see do fine. And so that's people, I think, often make a decision, you know, an impression of something based on what they see. So if they see something is mild and then they hear there's a vaccine, they're like, why should I do this? So I think part of it is looking at, you know, compare the risks of one to the other. Mm-hmm. Yes, most kids with COVID do fine. The risk of COVID in a young child is actually very, very low. But the risk of the vaccine in a young child is even lower than that. Um, so you are still better off with the vaccine than the virus. 
Right. But I think the problem is, though, that people look around them, they see children getting asymptomatic cases or mild cases, and then they hear the news and they hear scary stories on the news. So in terms of what's available to them, what they see, you know, it appears they hear all about the myocarditis because it doesn't sell news to hear my child got a vaccine, went home and did fine. This is true. <laughs> right. So I think just in terms of the way people's perceptions are, the risk looms larger from the vaccine than it really is. And that's the whole point of this conversation, to try to just give people information, you know, to empower them to make the best choice. So I also, I want to actually, I want to have questions at the end that I've collected, but I want to move on to the vaccine because we know that the vaccine has now been approved for the five to 11 year olds. And I want to just let you give us a little bit of update of what's different about that than the 12 to 15 and, and up. So I think the the most important difference between the 5 to 11-year-old vaccine and the 12 and up vaccine is the dose. Mm -hmm. Um, So for 12 and up, the vaccine contains 30 micrograms of mRNA. And for 5 to 11, the vaccine is going to contain only a third of that amount, so only 10 micrograms. Um, So during the first phase of the trial... Uh, Pfizer tested a bunch of different doses among this age group, um, 10, I think it was 10, 20, and 30 micrograms. And what they found was that the 10 microgram dose produced just as many um, neutralizing antibodies in these kids as the 30 microgram dose had done in patients 16 to 25 with fewer side effects. So the side effects with the 10 microgram were milder than they'd seen with the older dose. So they chose to go with that dose because it seemed to be just as effective with fewer side effects. Um, the other difference between the, in the terms of the vaccine formulation itself is that the 12 and up vaccine is dissolved in a buffer called phosphate buffered saline, whereas the young children vaccine is dissolved in a buffer called TRIS. I can tell you, having spent mm. many years pipetting in a lab, there's really not much different between these two. They're often used interchangeably. Um, what they did find, though, is that when using TRIS as the buffer, the vaccine was actually a little bit more stable and was easier to reconstitute for the pharmacist. So it would be easier to administer and there's less risk of dosing errors. So they thought it was worthwhile to change that buffer. But because they're so clinically interchangeable, it doesn't actually make a difference in terms of the vaccine safety or effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The other big difference is that the uh, the vials that contain the vaccine in this lower dose in this TRIS buffer have orange labels and caps versus the vials for 12 and up have purple labels and caps. And that's there as an added safety measure just to make sure that no one mixes up the two doses in, in places that are giving both adult and, and pediatric vaccines. Right. So I want to get to some of my questions on this specific dose difference because this is the first time we're having a dose difference. And there's so many questions on, well, what if my child is bigger? You know, what if I have a huge 11-year-old or a small 12-year-old? Can the 12-year-old get the smaller dose? A lot of people are asking, can my child get the smaller dose even if they're over 12? So um, vaccine, the dosage recommendations for this and other vaccines are based on age, not necessarily based on weight or size, um, which is different than a lot of pediatric medications. And that has to do with differences in immune response at different ages. Um, which doesn't necessarily correlate with changes in size. Um, is there something magical that happens <laughs> between 11 years, 11 months and 29 days and the age of 12? No. Um, but overall, the, the doses, I mean, the age cutoffs are not 
done randomly and the dose cutoffs are not done randomly. But I will say, if your child, you know, does somehow get the wrong dose for their age, they would still be, con- they w- doesn't mean they'd have to go and redo the whole right. vaccine series. So, you know, if, you, if your 11 and a half year old accidentally got the 30 microgram dose, it doesn't mean that they're not vaccinated. Or similarly, if your 12 year old got the 10 microgram dose, I don't think we would consider them unvaccinated either. Um, the, but it is, it is probably better to stick with the dosage recommendation for your child's age and not your child's size. Right. I don't think people really have a choice in which dose. I mean, I don't know if pediatricians are going to be interchanging them on, on request. I, I don't I can't think imagine they would. So I don't think they will simply because the emergency use authorization is for this 10 microgram dose for this age right. group. And the emergency use authorization for 12 and up is for the 30 microgram dose. So the only way that the wrong dose would be given is probably by mistake, which hopefully will never happen. But, you know, people are human and it can happen. Um, but even if it does, there's very little harm to be expected to come from it. And we wouldn't make you repeat the whole series. Right. And by the way, it's it's a little... They had to make a decision for the 11-year-olds turning 12, that if you start at 11 years, 11 months, and whatever, and your next dose, you're 12, you're supposed to get the higher dose? Um, I believe that is what it says on the CDC website. I checked it, yeah. My practice checked it, by the way. We actually called the CDC. So so people may want to know that. So if their child is getting close to 12, again, it's not recommended to wait to do this specifically, but just to be aware, you might want your child to get the same dose for both, and you might want to hit the 12th birthday before getting the first dose, that your second dose and first dose are the same. We're not making recommendations. We're not here to give any medical advice. Talk to your healthcare professional. But I just think that that weird, you know, switch over, that sudden switch over may make people think when they're getting the vaccine at that turnover age. Right. And the CDC does say that if you, you know, if you get the first dose a week before your 12th birthday, it's 10 micrograms. And then you get the second dose two weeks after your 12th birthday and it's 30 micrograms. That's still considered a complete vaccination series. Right. And even if you got 10 and 10, except that, was, that the 10 will no longer be recommended. Right. Right. I'm just wondering. Just like, leave it still if you got 10 and 10. Right. I mean, I think the point of doing the 10 is to get good enough immune reaction without too much adverse effects or yes. side effects. Yes. So in terms of getting good enough immune reaction, so one of the one of the things they did for this trial is something called immunobridging. Mm-hmm. Um, immunobridging is where when you don't have necessarily enough participants or enough data fast enough to be able to give an exact efficacy estimate, say, you know, this vaccine has this percent efficacy against whatever virus, um, you can do something called immunobridging where you com- where you use a correlative immunity or some other measure that you're using that shows immunity in another group and compare the rates you get with this new group you're testing to what you saw in the older group. So in this case, um, they had antibody titers from the 16 and up group, um, also from the 12 and up group. They compared it to the antibody titers they had from the 16 to 25-year-olds who'd been vaccinated. And if they could show that the vaccine in ages 5 to 11 produced similar levels of neutralizing antibodies, um, it would be good evidence that the vaccine would work. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things they did in this trial is they compared the antibodies that were produced in the 5 to 11-year-olds in response to the vaccine to the levels that were produced in the older teenagers and young adults. 
And what they found is giving the 5 to 11-year-olds this smaller dose produced the same amount of neutralizing antibodies as giving the older kids and young adults the higher dose did with fewer side effects, which all the more reason to go for this lower dose. Mm -hmm. um, they also looked at and so in this, these are, these were neutralizing antibody titers against the original COVID strain, because that is what the vaccine was originally designed for. Um, but in the 5 to 11 group, they actually also looked at neutralizing antibody levels against Delta specifically and found that in the 5 to 11 age group, this 10 microgram dose actually produced pretty high level of specific anti-Delta antibodies. So which gives you know, some good evidence or a good reason to believe that it's going to be effective against Delta. Um, the other reason to believe that it's effective against Delta is that during this age group trial, unlike the other trials, um, Delta was the prevalent strain. So uh, during, you know, this trial ran from the spring through the summer, uh, Delta was pretty much what was circulating. So if the, vac if the trial showed that the vaccine worked during that time frame, odds are it's working against Delta. Wait, how, how big was this trial? So this trial had, um, so actually initially, um, they had enrolled about 2,268 children, and they were randomized two to one. So two-thirds of the children were randomized to get the vaccine and one-third to get the placebo. That group is where we're getting the efficacy data and immunobridging data from. In August, the FDA actually asked them to double the size of their trial. This is, was in response to the safety signal with myocarditis that they saw in the teenagers over the summer. Um, so for those who are worried that this was too rushed, actually, this was supposed to go for EUA in August, mm -hmm. ideally so that we'd have it ready for the school year. But the FDA actually pushed it off because they wanted more safety data. Um, so they had them double the size of the trial to enroll another um, 2,379 children as a safety data set. And so those kids were also randomized two to one vaccine to placebo. Um, and we are using the, the safety data from all 4,500 children in both groups mm -hmm. um, for their safety analysis. So they actually, if you look through the 80 pages of trial results, um, you'll see they do an analysis of just the vaccine group, I'm sorry, just the initial enrollment group, just the safety group, and then they do a safety analysis of the entire group together. Um, and what they, so for the initial enrolled group, they were, just with the timing, they have at least two months of follow-up after the second dose for all of those kids. Um, and that's where we're getting the efficacy data for. And then for the safety group, they have obviously just because they just started doing this in August, they have somewhat shorter follow up for that group. Um, so there it's at least two weeks follow up. Most of the kids did have more, um, but that's what they're using for their safety set. Now, the two months for the original group, um, and it's also they use two months of data for the teenage trial and for the adult trial um, is based on the fact that for all prior vaccines, we didn't we haven't really seen a significant safety issue that crops up more than two months after you get it. Um, in general, if there's any like adverse effect, you'll see it within the first six weeks. And so this was somewhat of a compromise between wanting to make sure the trial ran had a long enough follow-up that we'd pick up all the major safety issues, um, but not so long that we wouldn't be able to approve it till we'd, you know, till we'd all gotten very sick with COVID. Um, so they chose two months as a kind of a good compromise there because that should pick up pretty much all of the major side effects.
But that doesn't mean they stopped monitoring it after two months. Both this trial and all of the other COVID trials are actually still in process. Those patients are still being followed, and they're going to be followed for at least another two to five more years um, so that they can assess for longer-term results, um, longer-term efficacy, as well as longer, any longer-term safety issues that may occur. And like with any other vaccine or, or drug, there's actually a lot of post-market surveillance that, that happens here. So both Pfizer and Moderna for their vaccine and Johnson & Johnson for theirs and AstraZeneca for theirs, as well as the FDA, the CDC, and all the government agencies and all the other countries that are using these vaccines, um, still continue to keep an eye on any sort of reported side effects that they see from these vaccines in what's called post-market surveillance, because there are some very, very rare side effects, for example, the myocarditis issue, mm-hmm. that only come to light when a lot of people get that medication or that vaccine. Uh, we saw a similar thing that happened um, with um, Celebrex and other COX-2 inhibitors and the risk for you know older patients that were being given it for pain and the risk of MI there. Those risks didn't come to light until post-market surveillance, at which point there were some modifications that were made. Um, so again, it's not that the trial's over, they got their approval, and now no one's paying attention. Um, there might even be more attention being paid now because there's more people getting it and probably more eyes on it as well. Right, and it's the same vaccine we're giving all over the world. It's just at a lower dose. So we do expect right. not more adverse effects in children, especially for the myocarditis, we would expect less, although we don't know for sure. Right. You never know for sure because, again, um, you know, children are not small adults. Mm. The, um, so, you know, there are differences in the immune system and how things work. And as I mentioned, you know, you, you choose our doses and our administration times for all these things based on age. Um, but in general, especially for something like myocarditis. So in general, younger children don't get myocarditis particularly often. Um, they get it much, much less frequently than teenagers or young adults or older adults do. Um, so overall, their baseline risk of myocarditis is going to be lower. And given that they're getting a lower dose, there's good reason to believe that the rates of myocarditis in this age group will likely be lower or at the very least not higher than what we see in the teenage group. Again, though, we don't know anything. I don't, none of us have a crystal ball. We cannot predict the future with, you know, 100% certainty. Right. I mean, I find there's two different ways of people are looking at this. One way is I can clearly see with all the information we know, we can only make a decision based on what we know, not on what we don't know, that the risks of the virus outweigh the risks of the vaccine, even in this lower risk age group of five to 11. Yes, it is a lower risk age group, but it is not, COVID is not minimized. We should not say it's minimal. Some people say, oh, there's no risk to COVID, and that's not true, even in this age group. Right. The risk isn't zero. Right. The risk for the vaccine isn't zero either. Right. But it is still lower than the risk of the virus. Right. But, I mean, I, I liked how you phrased it. It is true that the margin, right, the risk-benefit margin is smaller. So the second group says, we just said it's not a huge study. It actually is a very big study for a pediatric yeah. vaccine trial for numbers of reasons. Um and we should be thankful to all the parents who enrolled their kids in it, um, a number of which were physicians' children's, because I think they understood the process. And they also had a respect for, for COVID. Um, but that group says, I, I want to wait. I want to see more real-world data. They're so, taking the risk of COVID while they wait. 
Yes, they are. And it's not necessarily an unreasonable response right. to have. I mean, mm-hmm. the good news is they're going to have a lot of r- real world data very, very soon. Right. Um, what we saw with the, um, you know, what we saw with the 12 to 15 age group, there was definitely a cohort of parents that, you know, had their kids in line the minute it was announced. Right. Um, and then there was a cohort that wanted to wait a little while. And once they saw that that initial group, a couple of months had gone by and those kids were doing great, they then went and vaccinated their own kids. Um, especially before the start of the school year this year, there was, you mm-hmm. know, people were rushing to get it in in August. The, um, I think we're probably going to see a similar thing here. There are, you know, there are already parents who, there are already plenty of kids who've gotten the vaccine, um, just since it was given the EUA at the end of, la- uh, middle of last week. Um, Do we know how many? I'm curious. I haven't seen that data yet, but I suspect but it's going to go up rapidly. It's, it'll go up soon. The, yeah. um, I mean, we just started giving it, I think, last Wednesday or Thursday. Yes, <laughs> so, and, and, and clinics were yes. full. Yes. I most like people, like a lot of appointment slots in a lot of places went fairly quickly, um, right. just like they did with the with the older group. So we're so gonna, far, nothing bad has happened. <laughs> knock on wood. We're only... Poo-poo-poo. Knock on wood. Um, so yes. we will start getting real-world data on a very large group of kids in the next couple of weeks. And hopefully that will allay all the fears if people are kind of on the fence and waiting to see what happens. Right. Um, right. I just want to make, make, say it again, because I think I may have said it, may not have said it, that the, one of the most common fears is of long-term effects slash fertility effects. And we have to say it louder. <laughs> okay. So those, that is an, a completely unfounded myth. So the COVID vaccine does not create problems with fertility. Yes, it is true that after getting the COVID vaccine, some women have had some irregular irregularities in their menstrual cycle for one to two months, which then normalize. Um, I will actually say that having actual COVID will also cause menstrual irregularities. Um, and honestly, almost any sort of stressor will cause menstrual irregularities. So changing a medication, traveling, I mean, just remember living in a dorm Somehow, you know, with stuff like that, everybody's had cycle, had some cycle changes um, or, you know, changes in diet, stress, getting sick or get or being on any medication or any vaccine could actually cause some temporary changes in your menstrual cycle. But none of that actually reflects on fertility. That doesn't mean that you're not fertile. It just means your cycle's a little earlier late this time and then it'll go back to normal and you'll still be able to have kids. Right. And, um, and I want to say that at one point, some of us actually canvassed WhatsApp groups of physicians and other healthcare professionals, and we got like 600 of them to tell us that they had not seen any adverse effects, including fertility specialists. And some were joking that they actually had a boom of more babies born after. I had a patient who told me was joking about that, that she had struggled uh, with fertility and, and she got pregnant naturally after the vaccine. She's like, I'm a walking advertisement. Now, something happens after doesn't mean it was because we can't use right. that the other way. <laughs> True. Um, I will though say that there were a lot of people who were in a lot of adults actually who were waiting for the vaccine before trying right. to get pregnant. Um, and that's because of the extremely high risk of COVID infection during pregnancy. Right. Right. So right. a pregnant woman who is infected with COVID is 27 times more likely to die than a non-pregnant woman of the same age and baseline health who is infected with COVID. And COVID itself does cause an increase in miscarriage rate, an increase of 
fetal demise, an increase of problems with the placenta. And so COVID itself is very, very dangerous for both mom and baby. Um, the COVID vaccine is not. And actually, pregnant women who get the COVID vaccine during pregnancy, they have an or they have found that their babies are born with some circulating anti-COVID antibodies because um, it does pass through the, the the mom's antibodies pass through the placenta and are and provide some passive protection for the baby for the first couple of months of life. In the same way that we see that we give pregnant moms pertussis boosters mm-hmm. uh, during their third trimester to give some sort of passive immunity to the baby while they're too young to be vaccinated themselves. So actually. Getting the COVID vaccine during pregnancy is a good way to protect your unborn child. Right. Um, and you're giving me a great, a great chance to give a little, um, push, not push. I don't push vaccines, but <laughs> a moment to say that even if you've decided not to vaccinate your children for COVID, um, you yourself, you know, mom and dad should be. Um, I have this conversation sometimes and then I turn to the parents and say, are you vaccinated? And they're not either. So I will say, yes, while the benefit margin for young children, it's there. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's small, but it's there and it's right. real. Um, the benefit margin for adults is just, it's unmistakable. Right. Um, the, for if you're an adult, especially if you're an elderly adult or an adult with risk factors, and those risk factors include things that are pretty common, like obesity, high blood pressure, hypertension, um, or asthma, right. you are so much better off with the vaccine than the virus. And you don't you even be have there to be right. And you want to be there for your children. Yes. Right. So, yes, that's important. Um, long-term effects, because we mentioned the fertility, but there's two fears that have always been instilled in, in parents of new vaccines for children. And they've always been, this is nothing new, the fertility, which we talked about, and now the long-term effects. And you alluded earlier, but I'd like you to just make sure it's really clear. Why are we not worried about long-term effects of the vaccine? So I wouldn't say that we're not worried at all. Like remember, nothing's a hundred percent. We don't have a, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't say with a hundred percent certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could say with confidence that we're not worried simply because we haven't seen long-term effects that don't show up within those first two months with other vaccines. Um, not to say that some vaccines don't have long-term effects. There's always the, the rare side effect that, you know, is very, very rare, but seems much less rare if you're the person who's affected right, by it, right. um, but is in the grand scheme of things very rare. Um, but usually if they are going to happen, you see it within the first couple of weeks after vaccines. It's not like they were totally fine. And five years later, they have an issue that gets traced back to the vaccine. Um, and second, so we don't think this will be any different from that. Um, we don't know for 100% certain, but we're pretty confident that it won't be. It's, it's and then, not likely based on the mechanism right. either. So, and then also just in terms of there's not a good biologically plausible mm-hmm. reason why there would be some horrible long-term effects. So the vaccine contains MR. So just sort of a brief review of how the, of how the vaccine works. Um, so the COVID virus itself is, has a whole bunch of proteins and other components to it. Um, one of these proteins that we keep call, talking about the spike protein. So this is a protein that's actually on the surface of the virus. That's what gives, gives it its like, whenever you see a cartoon of it, it looks like a sphere with a bunch of things sticking out of it. So the things sticking out of it are what we call the spike protein. 
Um, and it's actually what gives the virus its name because it makes it look, a, they, someone looking at an electron microscope thought those spikes made it look a little like a crown. So Corona is the Latin for crown. Um, so the, um, so it's those spike proteins are actually what bind to the ACE receptors in our lungs. That's what enables the virus to bind to our cells and invade them. In order to beat a COVID infection, your body needs to create antibodies against that spike protein. Those are what we call those neutralizing antibodies. Um, and if you get infected with COVID, the vast majority of the time, because most people do survive, um, your body will make those neutralizing antibodies and you'll, and you'll clear it. Um, those neutralizing antibodies, so anti-spike antibodies, are the antibodies that are contained in Regeneron and those other monoclonal antibody therapies. Those are spike protein antibodies that were developed in a lab, generated from donors in convalescent plasma, and then eventually, you know, created in a laboratory. Right. Are those the same antibodies that measure when, when we measure people's antibodies? It depends on the antibody test you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, there are multiple different antibody tests out there. Some do specifically test for spike protein antibodies. Some will test for nucleocapsid protein antibodies. That's another nucleocapsid antibodies. That's another um, viral particle that we can create antibodies to, but those don't seem to be quite as neutralizing. Um, so someone who had COVID will likely have both spike protein and nucleocapsid antibodies. Someone who had the vaccine but didn't have COVID would only have spike protein antibodies. So, wait a second. Are the spike protein antibodies that we measure in regular labs that you can measure just the spike because you can? Yes. Um, although I'm not sure the spike are quantitative. They have. There are some that are. Okay. So since you the quantitative spike through. protein, does that tell you how immune you are? Or would you say, no, those are still not neutralizing spike protein? Are they the same or different? It depends on the lab test you are doing and depending on there hasn't yet, there isn't yet a, um, there, at least in the U S we haven't yet adopted a standard neutralizing spike protein titer that we would use to say you are this immune to the disease. Um, there are other countries that are using, um, neutral, uh, spike protein titers in that way. Um, but there isn't really yet a consensus of exactly what number you have to be to be told you're totally safe. Right. And some of the labs will report a cap of 250 or, you know, right. 2,500. There isn't, there isn't a standard for this yet. Mm -hmm. You'll get different, um, different units and different ranges reported by different labs. And it when, just has to do with the exact specific assay they're using, how they're reading it. There isn't one standard test at this time. Right. And the reason that's important is because people will say, oh, I have antibodies, I won't get it again. And yet I've heard... People, you know, specialists who've seen some of these patients say, oh, yeah, I've seen them get COVID right through supposedly right. high antibodies. It's one of those not all antibodies are created equal right. situations. Right. Um, so that's how we get rid of COVID on like on our own, right? We make antibodies, it goes away. Or if we are sick or high risk and we can't wait for our body to make its own antibodies, we give you antibodies um, through Regeneron and some of the other and other monoclonal antibody infusions. So what the vaccine does, it actually gets your body to make those antibodies without getting sick first. Um, so the vaccine creates mRNA, that's messenger RNA, that codes for that spike protein. So the mRNA gets injected into the muscle cells of your upper arm. And when it's in the cytoplasm, that mRNA gets converted by ribosomes, which are part of your cell that turn um, that use mRNA instructions to make proteins. And so your ribosomes then make spike protein. They don't make the entire virus. They just make the spike protein. So 
you cannot actually get COVID from the vaccine because you're not making a COVID virus. You're making a small piece of the virus that by itself can't do anything. Um, so then you make those spike proteins and those spike proteins are then shown to your, the cells of your immune system, your T cells and your B cells. These are your white blood cells. And Though that triggers those cells to then create antibodies against the spike protein. And then those antibodies hang out and they're, and, and the cells that make those antibodies hang out and form what are called memory cells. So that if you ever get exposed to that spike protein again, say if it's attached to a coronavirus that's trying to infect you, you already have the antibodies ready to stop the infection before it happens or to clear the infection very quickly before you get very sick. Now, those, those that mRNA that gets injected with the vaccine doesn't hang around for a very long time. mRNA is not actually a very stable molecule. It tends to degrade pretty quickly. Um, if you think about it, if mRNA did not degrade pretty quickly, our cell, we, our bodies use mRNA to instruct our cells to make proteins. We'd just be making proteins all the time, even if we didn't need those specific proteins. Um, so the mRNA actually degrades very shortly after you get the shot. Once the mRNA is gone, those cells stop making that spike protein. So it's not like you're going to make spike protein for you know forever and ever after you get the vaccine. Right. I want to go into that a little bit more deep because there's a lot of misinformation about the spike protein. Right. So you're not, you're not shedding spike protein. Okay. You're not shedding virus. It's not, you're not making virus from the vaccine. So you can't shed virus. And then in terms of that spike protein, it's not, getting into your nose. It's not getting into your airways. It's it's literally being shown to the cells of your immune system. They generate antibodies that then clear out those spike proteins and you're not making any more. Um, it's like the, the message that it also right. gets washed right. away pretty right. quickly because there's a myth that it gets all over your organs and it attacks no. them and it causes immune reactions. The mRNA isn't going anywhere other than the cytoplasm of the cell it was injected into. Um, and those spike proteins are, are also fairly short-lived thereafter, The um, which is why you're not going to get like a false positive COVID test after the COVID vaccine. There's no, or even an antigen test, there's, there's no proteins hanging around circulating everywhere. Um, you know, within a very short time after getting, getting the shot. Now, the other important thing to remember is that the vaccine contains mRNA, so messenger RNA. This is different than DNA. So DNA is our genetic material. So DNA lives in chromosomes, lives in, our nu in the nucleus of our cells. The DNA gets transcribed into messenger RNA that is then turned into proteins. The messenger RNA, once it's pushed from the nucleus back to the cytoplasm. It, it doesn't go back. It's, it's a one-way it's a one-way road for mRNA. mRNA cannot go from the cytoplasm into the nucleus. Therefore, it, it can't change your genetic material. In general, RNA can't change your genetic material at all because it's not DNA. It can't incorporate into your DNA. Um, and humans do not have a reverse transcriptase. We do not have any any protein or enzyme or molecule that will convert RNA back to DNA. Um, you might have heard of some viruses do have a reverse transcriptase. For example, HIV has, mm -hmm. a, um, has a reverse transcriptase and lentiviruses have a reverse transcriptase. And that's what allows those viruses to actually in, um, incorporate into your own DNA, um, which is why those viruses are very hard to clear once you become infected. The, um, the, the vaccine does not, humans don't have that. The vaccine doesn't include one. Um, so there's no way that that mRNA could then be converted into DNA and incorporate into your DNA and change your genetic material. That mRNA gets in there, 
gets gets your ribosomes to make some spike proteins and then is gone. It's not right. doing anything else. Right. That is a great explanation. Okay. So I do want to still get to a couple more of the questions. Um, so one of them is for children who had COVID already. So this is actually a really important question. Um, the rates of reinfection with COVID are pretty low. They're, they're not zero, but they're pretty low. Um, this is actually probably especially true for children. The rates of reinfection with children are probably a little bit lower than the rates are for adults. Um, it's still a bit of an open question about how much benefit um, a kid who already had COVID will get from getting mm-hmm. the vaccine. In the trial, they didn't see... So while... If you had a known COVID infection, you weren't enrolled in the trial, but there are plenty of people, especially children who may have had mild or asymptomatic COVID and never been tested. Um, so what they did do is for everybody who was enrolled in the trial, they were checked for COVID antibodies at the time of enrollment to see if there's evidence that they had prior infection. And what they found is those kids in the trial who had prior evidence of prior infection in both the vaccine and the placebo group, they didn't see any reinfections. Um, so does that mean those kids were already immune and don't need the vaccine? It's unclear. Um, there is, though, some thought, especially for adults, that there is a benefit to something called hybrid immunity. So that's where you have immunity from both uh, previous infection and from the vaccine. So that's either someone who had COVID and then later got vaccinated or who got vaccinated and was unfortunately one of those breakthrough cases. Um, so while the rate of infection after the vaccine is low, the rate of infection after COVID is low of reinfection, the rate of reinfection after having both recovered from COVID and been vaccinated is pretty close to zero. Um, So it's felt that that hybrid immunity does provide the most protection. So whether that benefit is also there for kids, it may well be. So there may still be some benefit to having a child who had COVID get the vaccine. but how much is still unknown? Again, it's it's it would be one of those cases where if you're if you are a, if your child already had COVID and you're worried about or hesitant to get the vaccine, I wouldn't worry so much if you want to wait. Um, you're not the one, you're not the ones who the people who already had COVID are not the ones that we are in the biggest rush to vaccinate because they probably do have some, at least some immunity from their prior infection. And we would like to boost that immunity with the vaccine. Um, but again, the people who never had COVID are at higher risk here. And so we are probably in a bigger rush to vaccinate those. Now, the major estimates from the FDA, um, do show that they think maybe about 40% of kids in the U.S. have had COVID, um, but that still shows that the majority of kids in the U.S. have not, and they're still COVID-naive and would benefit from the vaccine. Right. And just to be fair, immunity, I think you were the one who told me the line, um, immunology is where intuition goes to die. Immunology is where medical intuition goes to die. It is right. It is still the um, one of the most active areas of research in medicine. And there's still a lot we, uh, there's a lot we don't know yet. There's a lot we're learning um, and we're learning more and more every day. Um, but it is still one of the most active areas. One, still one of those, like, you know, one of the active frontiers in medicine. 
Right. So there are people who, who get infected and don't mount a response. It's heterogeneous. It varies. So I don't really know. I don't have data for children for this, but it's like you said, if you're hesitating and your child's had COVID, I mean, you should definitely speak to your healthcare yeah. professional. This is not for medical advice, but it's like you said, that would be even lower risk right. in a relatively low risk group. I mean, we are going to be, you know, as honest and transparent as we can about this. So some people ask, what about one dose? Can kids have one dose? So we don't have that data. Um, for the adult trial, they did look at efficacy after the first dose and then efficacy after the second dose. They don't seem to report that for the younger kids, um, possibly just because getting that data involves a blood draw and it's a little harder to do that on younger kids. Um, so I don't know if they don't, I don't know if they just didn't want to have to subject those kids to another visit and another blood test. Right. I think there's some other countries that are looking into a single yes. dose for children, but, but not here. Right. When well, again, a separate issue of, of, of people who, adults who've had COVID, when the data shows that a single dose of a vaccine for someone who had COVID boosts their immunity very highly, and yet America is not accepting at this point one dose in someone with prior COVID is fully right. vaccinated. But I would say like even in Israel, where they did take that approach initially, they are giving a second dose to those people now, mm-hmm. um, I believe. Or to some of them, I don't know what their exact booster protocol is. The um, so again, this is one of those benefits of we're going to get a whole lot of real world data very very quickly, right. uh, just because never before in history have and part of the reason we actually pick up on some of these very rare side effects is because never before in history have we given a vaccine or a medication or any sort of medical intervention to billions of people at the same time. And the whole world is looking. Right. And there really aren't secrets here, despite, you know, some conspiracy theorists. I don't think any other medical intervention has been um, subject to as much scrutiny as this one has. Right. And I, and I do find that very reassuring. I mean, you can listen to, you know, however much you, you distrust, you know, the FDA or the CDC, their, their proceedings are open. Yes. They're recorded. You can listen to them in real time. You can listen to them after and you can see how much skepticism and how much work goes into making these decisions, including for children. Right. So, you know, there is a big cushion of safety. Safety doesn't mean 100%. No one is saying this is 100% risk-free. No one is saying this is 100% effective. So how effective are we finding this this vaccine in, in children? So on the based in the trial, they did find an efficacy rate of about 91% against symptomatic COVID. Um, so again, like in the other trials, they didn't look for asymptomatic infection. Um, they only looked for symptomatic COVID and they found that was 91% effective there. And that probably is including against Delta, just because that was the virus that was circulating at the time of the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know. So some things that the, you know, the trial didn't answer um, because that's not what they were looking at is whether it can prevent asymptomatic infection. We don't know. Um, based and whether it can prevent or decrease, prevent transmission based on what we see in adults, it probably does do a decent job. Um, against with transmission and asymptomatic infection. Again, there are breakthrough infections, and I'm sure a lot of people here know a lot of people who've had breakthrough infections. But you have to think about the fact that that denominator for that number is massive. It, there have been billions of people have been vaccinated, um, or rather billions of vaccine doses have been given. And the rate of breakthrough infections, even though the absolute number might seem high to people, it's actually a very tiny percentage of the total number of vaccinated people. Um, which shows that 
the vaccine actually is still working pretty well at preventing infection and reducing transmission. Um, and it's very likely that it'll have that same effect in younger kids. Right. And I think we have to be um, accepting of perfect. You know, we're not going to get perfect. We're going to get the, as good as we're going to get and accept that. And right. I think the problem with these numbers of 91% in a small trial can be misleading and real world's efficacy is likely to be lower. Right. Um, it is, but it's not probably, but it's still probably going to be highly effective right. at preventing symptomatic illness. Right. And of course, even more severe disease, hospitalization yes. and death. But I think the problem with the breakthroughs is a lot of people lost faith because they heard this is going to prevent everything. Like it was really marketed to the public or it wasn't clear to the public that the main goal was to prevent severe disease, hospitalization and death. And it wasn't going to make COVID go away. And of course, right. Delta is mad infectious. Right. It's, it's, we're not going to make COVID go away. Um, what we can do is make COVID a lot less scary. And that's what the vaccine does. Um, we can, we won't have to, we, we worry about COVID because it's so contagious and it can be so harmful for so many people. Yes. Majority of people with COVID survive and do fine. Um, but there's still a decent percentage, especially if you're older or high risk or immunocompromised or have other risk factors or pregnant of people who really don't do well, who either, either die, God forbid, or have significant morbidity or have debilitating long-term COVID or long-haul COVID. Um, the benefit of what the vaccine does, it, it lowers that risk. It lowers the risk of severe illness. It lowers the risk of death. It brings COVID down to an illness that is much more manageable and an illness that won't overrun our hospitals. Because when our hospitals are overrun, you have to, you, you can't take care of other things. So when you're, when your unit is full of COVID, you don't have room for the person who needs chemo. It, it makes it harder to treat the person who has a heart attack. It means that the appendicitis might have to wait a little bit before going to the operating room right. because we're just overwhelmed. Um, and so having a way to make this virus something that's really not going to make you that sick, um, that will not make you have to go to the hospital. It's a huge benefit. It turns it into something that's super scary to something that is, okay, we can deal with this. It's going to okay. end up being another one of those viruses we deal with. Right. But what I'm hearing some people say is, but we have monoclonals to do that. What do we need the vaccines for? So I find it really interesting how people prefer the monoclonal antibodies where you're getting antibodies that you that are made either in a lab or from condolence plasma or whatever it is. And you prefer that to having your own body make your own antibodies. Um, to me, it just seems to make a lot more sense to um, just get myself to make the antibodies, which is what you do with the vaccine. Now, granted, monoclonal antibodies have been very effective in keeping people out of the hospital and preventing hospitalization and preventing death from COVID. Um, but wouldn't prevention be better than treatment? Um, for most you, you other say things, that. we say that. Right. You, you say that, but I think a lot of people's perspective is, I will worry about it if I get it. And I'm so glad that monoclonals are there for me if I get it. So I'm also glad monoclonals are there <laughs> if mm -hmm. we get it. Um, but I think if is the, is, the, is the wrong word here. It's not if, it's when. Um, again, this is a highly contagious airborne respiratory virus that has spread across the planet very quickly. And that is also has an animal reservoir. It is, we're all going to be exposed to COVID. 
We're, we're not everybody who's hasn't had COVID yet is going to be exposed to it. It's not going to be the kind of thing that you can avoid for your entire life. If you think about it in the same way where, do you know anyone who cradle to grave never had the flu? with or without the vaccine, it's it's going to be that same sort of thing. Every human on the planet is going to, at some point, get exposed to COVID. Now, whether they get infected or whether they get very sick is going to depend on what their risk factors are, how old they are, and whether or not they've been vaccinated. Being vaccinated makes you much more likely to be in that group of people who either don't get infected at all when they're exposed or who only have mild or asymptomatic disease when they're exposed. You are much better off being in that group than being in the group of people who are facing this virus with no protection at all. Right, exactly. It's a layer of protection that you should start with, and then you can add the monoclonal if you need them, as opposed to having no protection and waiting to get the monoclonal. Right. And, and also, we didn't discuss this, but I think it's worth discussing, and I'm, I'm, I thank you so much for your time. We're almost done. <laughs> Is the circulation of the virus. Now, we can't get rid of it. But I think like at this, at this point, we should still not be spreading it more than we have to. So if you're waiting for monoclonal, that means you're helping circulate the virus as opposed to bringing down the circulation. In other words, decreasing transmission, even if not perfectly to whatever degree we can. I mean, even if we have a 50% decrease, that's 50% more than zero. So I will say every time we decrease transmission or decrease viral circulation, that's also decreasing the opportunities for the virus to mutate and create mm-hmm. more, more variants that are either more contagious or more deadly. Um, we've been pretty fortunate so far. The Delta variant, even though it is much more contagious, it isn't necessarily more deadly than the original Russian, one. Yeah. Oh, um, but I'd rather not play our luck. Um, I don't want to reach a point where we have a virus that is more contagious and more deadly. Right. Um, it may happen. It may happen no matter what we do. Right. Um, but decreasing transmission is sort of the best way we have to decrease or at least delay that happening. Right. And it's not the same thing as we're asking people to wear hazmat suits or masks all the time or lockdowns or any of those kind of things. It's a vaccine. It's a one-time thing that you do. And each person that does that helps decrease that transmission, decrease that circulation. Whether being vaccinated will mean that... You don't have to wear masks or you don't have to quarantine. You don't have to do X, Y, and Z is probably a decision that's not necessarily going to be made by us. It might be made by mm-hmm. policymakers. It might be made by school officials, by government officials. Um, but their decision making is going to be influenced by the rate of transmission and the severity of illness and the hospitalization rate they are seeing in their community. So anything we, we can do to bring those numbers down um, will hopefully help us you know, help us help them make choices that allow us to have fewer restrictions. Right. And and you're letting me segue into mandates, except that I can't bring myself to talk about them. <laughs> I don't know if you want to, but I can't. So for this, I will actually say I for cry. this. I just want to cry. So for this age group, um, so mandates have become a very hot button, politically charged topic. And I'm just going to say that I, here I'm expressing my own personal opinion on them, um, which for me is that for this, especially for this age group, the five to 11 year old age group, I do agree with the committee, uh, the recommendation committee for the FDA that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to cross that line yet between recommending and mandating. The advisory committee for the FDA, when they were voting, about whether or not to recommend approval. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually had a lot of, a bit of soul searching and a lot of give and take, um, as you can see it on the video towards the right. end of it. The, um, because some of them, they, they, they're, the question they were supposed to vote on is do the benefits outweigh the risk, right? Um, 
should we recommend it? It was a very binary. It was a yes or no choice. Right. And that bothered a lot of them because they didn't want a yes answer to create a mandate. Right. They were um, all against it. Right. They did they not want a mandate. Um, mm-hmm. What they did want is the vaccine to be available for parents who wanted it. And that's an important thing to remember. Um, we, it's Again, we have no reason, no biologically plausible reason to think that there's going to be some significant, crazy long-term effect. Um, but we don't have crystal balls. Um, and unlike a lot of the other vaccines we use, we don't have decades worth of data behind us here yet. We can't. This pandemic's only been around for two years. The um, so there is a fine line between recommending and mandating, right. and they were not ready to cross it. I for five to eleven year olds, I'm also not ready to cross it. Oh no way! Yeah. So that again, though, that's not a decision that's necessarily going to be made by any of us here. <laughs> Right. But I'm hoping that this information will help people make a decision not under duress, you know, and not under pressure or propagandizing, but just straightforward information. And I have to say thank you so, so much for doing this with me. This has been amazing. I really hope it'll help people. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.